my name's Ryan. If you're new here, I want to welcome you to week two. Actually, I, I would like to welcome you either way, new world. But I want to welcome you to week two of our series called Faces of Sin. This is a 10-week series that we're in um, this fall where we are looking at how the Bible and different passages and different stories talks about this thing called sin. And the reason that we have dedicated an entire series to this, talked about it last week, um, it really boils down to, to three things. Number one, apart from an understanding of sin, <clears throat> you cannot understand yourself. The Bible's filled with stories of people, some we're going to cover in this series, actually one we're going to be talking about today, filled with stories of people who moved through life totally unaware of what was growing in their own heart until it, it blew up in their life, it made a mess of their life, and it caused them and, and those closest to them a great deal of pain. And so bottom line is you and I are going to move through life with a dangerous lack of self-awareness if we don't understand what the Bible's talking about um, when it talks about sin. Secondly, however, uh, apart from an understanding of sin, we also really can't understand the world that we're living in. If it's true uh, that the world has been broken and stained and corrupted by sin and every single human heart has been affected by sin, then the bottom line is if we don't understand what the Bible's saying is lurking in every human's heart that we interact with, we're going to be woefully unprepared and perpetually disoriented and kind of naive when we move out into life. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, apart from an understanding of sin, you really cannot be transformed by the grace of God. Every single person who's had their life transformed by Jesus has had to, at some point in their life, come to an awareness of their need for grace. And so the bottom line is, we can't understand our need for grace until we understand the sin that, uh, that dwells within us. And so my hope for this series is really just those three things would, would become a reality in us as a community, that we would grow in self-awareness, that we would grow in wisdom as we deal with the world, broken as it is. Um, but, but more importantly than, than either one of those things, the hope for this series is that over the next 10 weeks, we would all, individually and, and as a collective, we would be put in a position to be transformed either for the first time or just the next time by the grace of God as found exclusively in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So last week we got started. We looked at the first recorded sin in the Bible. That's Adam and Eve. Uh, this morning we are looking at the first recorded murder in human history. That's the story of Cain and Abel. The story that I thought I knew until this week. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Adam was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. Then she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain's, uh, Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's guardian? Then God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This is God's word. The problem with the story of Cain and Abel, and I think this is the case with all of the more well-known kind of Sunday school stories in the Bible, of course, it's not really a problem with the story itself, it's a problem with us. We think we know what it's all about. Um, It's easy to read the the story of of Cain and Abel, and, you know, the first thing that you see is uh, this guy Cain who was so much of a bloodthirsty lunatic that he murdered his brother for no reason other than his own out-of-control inferiority complex. And so what we see is this caricature of evil in Cain that is so obvious, it's so gratuitous and flamboyant that, you know, we kind of stand outside of it and, and you gawk at it. You know, it's just, oh man, that's, that's unbelievable. But you can't really relate to it. You could certainly never see Uh, any of yourself in Cain or vice versa. And so when you read the story that way, which I'll just tell you, that's how I've read the story my whole life. Uh, When you read the story that way, it it sort of becomes this parable about the explosive nature of sin. You know, Genesis 3, people are eating fruit they shouldn't eat. Just a chapter later, you got brothers murdering each other, and it's all about how sin kind of goes from zero to 60 immediately and suddenly and without warning. It's explosive. I just want to offer to you, I think the story is designed to teach us the exact opposite of that. You give me about a half hour here, I'll try to prove it to you. <clears throat> the story of Cain and Abel is the story of these two brothers. One uh, that God seems to have accepted, that's Abel. The other that God seems to have rejected, that's Cain. But when you really start asking, well, why is that? It's not abundantly clear that there even is an answer. Uh, now, a lot of times you hear this story taught, I've heard it this way, that the reason that God accepted Abel's offering but not Cain's is because Cain's offering was inherently inferior. You know, he only gave the fruit of the ground. I'll just tell you that is absolutely not correct. The first thing that we're told about Cain and Abel is their professions. Cain worked the ground. He was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. He worked with animals. So both of these brothers brought to God what they had. Cain brought exactly what a farmer had to bring to God, which was the fruit of his labor, the fruit of the ground. And not only did Cain bring what he had before God, but he did so completely and entirely of his own volition without obligation or compulsion. There's a couple of different Hebrew words that can get translated into our English word offering, and they mean different things. And I'll just tell you the Hebrew word translated offering here. Uh, the, the offering that Cain and Abel brought before God, it's not talking about a sin offering. It's not talking about, you know, Cain did something wrong and he knew he was going to get in trouble if he didn't throw something down on the altar real quick, so he knew he had to give God something. That's not what happened here. This is a free will offering. So what you have in Cain is somebody who is of his own volition. For It's a just because sort of thing. Cain has decided to bring before God what was his, what he had worked very hard to cultivate and grow, and what I'm sure he and his family could have really used, fruit of his own labor, sweat of his, you know, his own brow, and he gave it to God just because. Now, I, I say that to, to make this point. There's a lot of people, I'm not trying to be needlessly abrasive or anything, uh, there's a lot of people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be a part of the people of God, who know very well what the Bible and Jesus specifically says about how God's people should be generous and how they should interact with their own money and how they should give it away, a lot of it. But they don't. You know, they don't really give a whole lot to charity or to ministry or to people in need. They kind of view it as, hey, I worked hard for this, it's mine. 
even though they have Bible verses that they can point to that say, no, if you follow Jesus, that should be reflected in your generosity toward people. I'm saying this to make the point, here Cain is. Cain is, is living in a time and a place when there was no the Bible. It means there was no commandment or law or statute or chapter and verse that you could point to and show him, hey, Cain, you should give some of your stuff to God. And yet here Cain is, he's doing it anyway, just because. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but I'd ask you to consider there's a good chance that Cain was more generous than a lot of us are. The issue was not that he wasn't generous, but Abel was. And it's, it, the other thing I'd ask you to consider, it's certainly not that Abel believed in God when Cain didn't believe in God. It's not like Cain was some godless pagan. I actually think it's safe to say that Cain believed in God more than any of us do. I think that, that God was more real to Cain than he, he, he most often is to any of us. And the reason I say that is because Cain had a literal conversation with God in this story. So I've, I've kind of laid the groundwork here to make, the, to make the, uh, the, the case. When we look at Cain and Abel, it's not like we have this morally upright paragon of virtue named Abel and then this kind of um, godless, hedonistic pagan named Cain. What you have here is two brothers who were both very hardworking. Uh, they were both moral. They were both upstanding citizens in their respective communities. They're, they're two people that would have both made great neighbors. They're both giving of their own free will to God. If you want to bring that into kind of layman's terms, modern-day ideology, this is two brothers who are both praying, reading the Bible, going to church, and tithing regularly. If you were to look at their life on the surface, you'd be hard-pressed to find any kind of difference between them on the surface. Of course, the difference between the two of them becomes clear when we see how God responded to the offerings that they brought. What, what we're told here <clears throat> is that God had regard for Abel's offering, but he did not have regard for Cain's. Now, here's what I don't think that means. I don't think that means that when Cain and Abel laid their offerings before God, that God in that moment said, Abel, I regard you. Cain, access denied because reasons. I don't think that's what happened here. When you look at what this word had regard for in the Hebrew means, what, what I think happened is um, over a long period of time, because it would take a long period of time to really see this, after Cain and Abel laid these offerings before God, over a long period of time, God decided to bless Abel and to cause Abel to prosper in a way he simply decided not to bless Cain. I think it took place over a long period of time, and over that long period of time, Scripture tells us that, that Cain could be described with two words. He became furious, and he became despondent. It's a Hebrew phrase that literally means his face fell. So you have this guy that is so churning inwardly with anger and rage and bitterness and resentment that he was, it got to the point it was so bad, he was wearing it on his face. Basically, he saw somebody else's life going the way that he was so sure his life could be going, and it slowly but surely began to eat him alive. Now, what that proves, of course, is that Cain's offering was never about truly giving God something. Cain's offering was about him trying to get God to give him something, namely the life that he wanted for himself. And so I say this to make the point that Cain was not born some sociopathic, bloodthirsty lunatic, this ticking time bomb that everybody knew, you know, as soon as he gets Abel alone, he's going to, you know, murder him. That's just not who Cain was. What Cain was, by the biblical definition, he was just a normal, half-hearted, religious guy. 
And he related to God the way that all normal, half-hearted, religious people do. Jesus talked about this over and over and over in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a number of weeks in that earlier this year. What you have in Cain is this individual who's doing all these good deeds. He's, you know, offering all these things before God. He, he, you know, you look at his life, you can see tons of stuff that you would want to emulate, that, you know, this is what good people do. You want your kids to grow up and be like that. You have Cain doing all these good deeds, but underneath it, he's not doing it from a heart of thankfulness to God for what God had done for him. He's doing all this out of this desire to manipulate God into giving him the life that he wanted. And when he found out that God doesn't work that way, he couldn't handle it. It gave rise to this ugliness in him that had been growing for a very long time. And that ugliness finally manifested itself as murder, but what I would just ask you to see here is it didn't start that way. What eventually, over over the span of probably decades in Cain, finally gave birth to murder, that started with, with seemingly small, seemingly commonplace sins like a sense of entitlement. Uh, it started with a tendency to compare what you have to others. It started with ungratefulness. It started with envy, bitterness, just discontent. That's what it started with. It took a long time to get to what we see happen in this story. C.S. Lewis has this great quote along these lines. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. That's the story of Cain. It's not the story of a natural-born killer. It's the story of a guy who, on the surface, looked like a pretty good guy who was living a pretty good life but had an ugliness growing inside of him that was just waiting for an opportunity to rear its ugly head. And, of course, at the end of Cain's story, we don't get the happily ever after. You know, it's not like the, the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. I love at the end. I watch like every version available of that movie every time Christmas rolls around. And it, it always hits me at the end when Ebenezer Scrooge kind of comes to himself and he realizes how ugly of a person he's been and he changes his ways. That never happens for Cain here. Instead, what, what happens is Cain goes off and he becomes what my version of the Bible describes as a, or, or translates as a restless wanderer. I just want you, th- want you to think about the picture that, the, that Scripture's painting there. What that's saying is that Cain, from this, for the rest of his life, he became the kind of person that never found rest, no matter where he went. He never found what every human heart is looking for, which is home, a place where you can finally let your guard down. He was a wanderer, meaning he never found what he was looking for. And for the rest of his life, even if he was surrounded by people, he was utterly and entirely, irreducibly alone. And that's just the end of his story. We don't really know exactly what happened to him, and then the narrative just moves on, and that's instructive. There's a reason his story ends that way. It's basically God's way of telling us the question you should be asking yourself is not, I wonder whatever happened to Cain. The question we should be asking ourselves is, I wonder what is currently happening to me. Unsettling as this thought may be, and I'll just make this personal for you, Unsettling as this thought may be, 
What the story of Cain and Abel forces the reader to come to terms with is the reality that if you look inside yourself and you find this sense of entitlement, that you're owed a better life than the one that you've been given, if you find in yourself this tendency to envy other people and a real difficulty celebrating their successes with them, If you find in yourself this tendency to be angry at God because he has this this way of not doing things the way that you think he should do them, what this story is telling you as the reader is the same thing that was growing in Cain's heart is currently growing in yours. Let's close in prayer. This is a painful story. Uh, And if if you find that unsettling and you want that to not be your story, meaning you don't want to be a restless wanderer during your time in life, then what you have to do is understand what Cain never, just never got around to understanding. And everything that he needed to understand is found in what God says to him right before he chose to murder his brother Abel. This story, or this series, is all about the faces of sin. We're looking at how these different passages of Scripture and stories in Scripture talk about this thing called sin, and I just want to spend all of our time together narrowing in on what God tried to get Cain to understand about his sin in verse 7. He said, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, God is actually saying three different things there. And just to make sure that we understand how important this is, Had Cain understood what God was trying to get him to understand, it would have saved not only his brother's life, but even that of his own. So we're going to spend our time this morning looking at the three things that Cain never got around to understanding. We're going to look at, first off, the hiddenness, the hiddenness of sin, that it's crouching at the door. Secondly, we're going to look at the power of sin, that its desire is for you. And then lastly, We're going to look at the hope for the defeat of sin. He told Cain, you must rule over, or some versions say, you must master it. So first off, let's look at the hiddenness of sin. When God says to Cain, think of the the, the metaphor, think of the imagery that God is eliciting here. When God says that sin crouches, the Hebrew word that's used here, if you look at how it's used elsewhere in Scripture, it's almost... It refers often to large, uh, big, big game predatorial cats, think like leopards and tigers. <laughs> That's what he's saying when he says sin uh, crouches. And if you've ever seen, you, you actually even see this in house cats. It's just kind of like a part of feline DNA. That when, when cats are stalking something, when they desire to destroy something, to consume something, or just to kill something, they almost all do the same exact thing. Nobody needs to teach them to do this. They fold their ears back. They get real low to the ground, and they, they, they have this ability to, to make themselves stay almost supernaturally still. And they do that to make themselves appear smaller than they are, less threatening than they are, in the hope that they can avoid detection and strike uh, when basically their, their prey is, is beyond hope. Okay, what God is saying, and just let this sober you up this morning, God is saying that, that sin is exactly like that. <clears throat> Here's what this means. Try to make this, you know, personal. This means that the sin in your life right now, and I want to be clear what I mean and what I don't mean there. I'm not not saying that that sin in general, 
is like this, right? So, so I, I'm, here's where I'm going with this. Please don't think that this doesn't apply to you just because you can admit, yeah, I'm a sinner, right? It, it's not enough to be able to say, well, sure, I'm a sinner. You know, sure, I have flaws. Sure, I'm not perfect, but who is? What, what God is saying to Cain, what he's trying to get all of us to understand here is that the particular sin in your life right now, what Hebrews would call your besetting sins, meaning the sin that is, that is right now most distorting your life and is causing you to make unwise, destructive decisions that is going to hurt you and the people closest to you, that, those sins, your crouching sins, what God is saying here is that if you can even see them at all, what you should know is that those sins are always far greater than they appear to you. That means that you might be able, you might have like a vague sense of pride. You know, okay, maybe I I struggle with pride. I I guess sometimes I'm a little bit slow to apologize or say that I was wrong, but that's just because, you know, I'm right more often than not. I'm just saying this. if, If what God's saying is true, and I think it's true because it's God saying it, this means that pride in your life, just do whatever you want with this, pride in your life, your pride, it means that your greed, it means that your bitterness, your tendency to hold grudges, it means your lust, it means your anger, your resentment, your fill in the blank, even if you have a vague sense of it, it is always, you should just move through life with a humility that is open to the idea that, it, that those things that you can kind of sense in your life, if you can sense them at all, they are far greater than they appear to you. That's what God was trying to get Cain to understand. It's what he's trying to get us all to understand in this passage. So pause here and let's have a team meeting. When I was putting this teaching together, this right here is where I was going to ask you, this is my attempt to kind of, you know, you you always want to try to to, to make teachings relatable. You always want to try to, you know, hit people where they live. So this is where I was going to say, okay, so do you know what your crouching sins are? Uh, But then I hit backspace a whole bunch because I realized that question actually doesn't make any sense. Because if what God is saying about sin is true here, then no, you don't know what your crouching sins are. You can't know what your crouching sins are because they're crouching. Meaning even if you do have a vague sense of them, there's no, we just don't have the ability to see the full scope and size of them. So the question, when you really think through what's, what, what's I'm just letting you into my thought process here. When you really think through what is being uh, taught here in Scripture, the question is not, do you know what your crouching sins are? The question is, how can you find out what your crouching sins are? Is there a way to figure out what your own particular crouching sins are, the sins that are uniquely stalking you right now and want to ruin your life? That's going to be different for every one of us. The question is, is there a way to discover what yours are? are personally? The answer is yes, all right? Uh, just to be clear, Scripture answers this question, you know, how do you discover what your crouching, your hidden sins are? Scripture answers this question all kinds of different ways, and I was so tempted to throw the whole kitchen sink at us this morning, but I'm growing as a person and as a communicator, and I've learned that sometimes you say more if you say less, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to answer this question you know, based on everything that we see in Scripture, I just want to give you the answer that this particular passage of Scripture has in it, right? So, so let, me, let me back up here. The question we're asking is, how can you discover what your particular personal crouching sins are? Here is the answer to that question that the story of Cain offers us, 
right? Have, has the suspense built? Are you on the edge of your maroon padded seat this morning? Here's the answer. If you want to find out what your crouching sins are, pay attention to your pain. Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> In this story, before Cain murders Abel, and this just shows how much God desires us to repent. God desires that we repent way more than we desire to repent. In this story, before Cain murders Abel, God is already proactively hunting him down, going after him, and he asks Cain two specific questions. Why are you furious? Why are you despondent? Remember, when Cain and Abel laid their offerings on the altar before God, it says that God had regard for Abel's offering, not Cain's, and he became furious and despondent. Before, Before that turned into murder, God came to Cain, graciously pursued Cain, and he asked him, hey, Cain, why are you furious and why are you despondent? <clears throat> now, let's be clear. God was not asking that, those questions because he needed information. God was not asking Cain those questions because he wanted to discover what was in Cain's heart. He was asking Cain those questions like a brilliant counselor because he wanted Cain to discover what was in Cain's heart. This is basically God's way of, of coming to Cain trying to have an intervention, trying to get Cain to face himself. And God God was essentially saying, hey, Cain, you're in a situation in life that you don't want to be in. And it's bringing some really painful, really powerful, really volatile emotions to the surface in your life. When God says, why are you furious? Why are you despondent? That's God's way of saying, hey, Cain, pay attention to those powerful, painful, volatile emotions. Pay attention to them. Lean into them and trace them backwards in your heart. Ask yourself, what's the real source of all of that stuff boiling to the surface in your life? If Cain had done that, what he would have discovered, among other things, is that his issue was not Abel. Abel was simply the instrument that God was using in Cain's life to bring to the surface all that needed to be dealt with in Cain's heart. But Cain, unfortunately, refused to do that. So, so, so what's, what's the application for us? Here it is. This is about as, as relevant and down-to-earth as I know to be. I am sure that most, if not all of us, can relate to Cain in the sense that we're in a position that's remarkably similar to Cain's this morning. Maybe, maybe you listening to this, maybe you have a literal able in your life right now that God is blessing in a way that you really want him to bless you. You, you kind of deeply think he should be blessing you like that and it's eating you alive. And of course, you don't want to admit that out loud because who wants to admit exactly how shallow and petty and self-centered we are? But maybe you have a literal able like Cain had an able, or maybe not. Maybe there's no literal able, but you just like Cain are in a, are in a place in your life that you don't want to be in. Maybe you find, if you got really honest, that there's a lot of things swirling around your heart that sound like, God, you owe me a better life than this. I've worked so hard. I've made so many sacrifices. I've refused to take the easy way out when when so many other people took the easy way out. You owe me a better life than this. And you can look around and see people prospering and and you got nothing but anxiety and things are falling apart and you've been trying to do it right. right? If, If any of that sounds relatable to any of us this morning, then if that's where you are, then just like Cain, I'm sure there's a whole lot of stuff that that's bringing to the surface in your life right now. Maybe it's a a lot of the same uh, emotions and feelings that Cain was dealing with, you know, despondency, bitterness, depression, anger, whatever it is, whatever it is. If that's where you find yourself, then the first thing we have to realize, and this might be a real painful thing to realize, but 
I don't think any of us can grow up, myself included, until we're ready to see this. The first thing we have to realize when we find ourselves in a position like the one Cain was in is the situation that God is leading us through in life did not create anything in our hearts. It's just revealing what was already there. I don't think there's a single situation that God leads us through that has the power to create anything in our hearts. God just leads us in and out of situations that reveal and bring to the surface all that was already there. And when God does that, when God leads us through a situation that brings all those things to the surface, like it did with Cain, the wisest thing that we can do is instead of following those emotions and feelings outward like Cain did, is we trace those emotions back into our own hearts by asking ourselves the same questions that God asked Cain. Why am I furious? Why am I despondent? Why do I feel the way that I feel? Where is this really coming from? What have I told myself I need without which my life will never be worth living? Ask that question over and over. What's the real reason for what I'm feeling right now? Because if we follow that thread where it leads, we will arrive dead center at our crouching sins, the things that have taken the place that only God deserves to have in our hearts. That's the hiddenness of sin. Number two... Let's talk about the power of sin. God says here, not only that sin crouches, but he says that sin desires to have you. Now, the thing that immediately grabs me about that, it's it's just, it's what the text says, it's how God personifies sin there. You know, a lot of times, certainly myself included, and maybe you can say amen to this, a lot of times when we talk about sin or when we think about sin, we think about it as something that's so impersonal. We think about it as something that's so abstract. And I I just would draw your attention, when God talks about sin, that's not how he talks about it. He talks about it like it's an actual person, like it's an actual being. It's the same thing that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard this. When Paul talks about love, he describes love as though it is a person. He says love is patient, love is kind. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. He's personifying it. That's the same thing that God's doing here. He's just doing it with sin. And so, you know, I would just invite you, you know, consider this and and let this maybe sober you up this morning. What God is saying here is that sin is not just a desire. Sin is something that has its own desires. And its desire is you. Its desire is to completely consume you, to invade every area of your life until it completely defines you. For the second time today, let me quote old C.S. Lewis again. He said, every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all its innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. What Lewis is saying there is the same thing that God's saying here, that sin is so powerful and sin is so ravenous that, hear me, you cannot partake in it without it also partaking in you. 
and it will not be satisfied until it has all of you. So again, we're getting pretty psychological this morning, group therapy session. Let's think about this idea using Cain as an example. All right, let's just read this concept back into Cain's life. In this story, we see Cain dealing with things that I think are totally relatable to anybody that's lived life for any length of time. We see Cain, at the very least, he's dealing with bitterness and he's dealing with anger. Let me ask the question, rhetorically, albeit, but let me ask the question, okay, who is Cain angry and bitter toward? And the answer is not Abel. He's not angry at Abel. It's not like Cain feels like Abel hasn't been fair to him or Abel hasn't given him the life that he deserves. His anger and his bitterness is primarily aimed at God. So I just want you to see uh, the, the progression of sin in Cain's life. What started as something that was just between him and God inevitably became somebody else's problem in Cain's life. What's, what's the application here? Here it is. Here it is. And I just, I've been sitting on this all week. I, this is an uncomfortable reality, but just now we're in this together. Here's what we see in Cain's life. Bitterness in any area of your life will eventually infect every area of your life. It will not be satisfied with a part of you. And by the way, you could fill in the blank, you know, bitterness, you can trade that out with anger, you could trade that out with, you know, fantasizing, you could trade that out with whatever it is, that that any particular sin in a person's life will not be satisfied to stay in the corner of that person's life. This is why, I remember I, I, I referenced this proverb in the law school series in late summer, and it really hit home with a number of people. I thought this was a good opportunity to bring it out again. This exact concept is why the writer of Proverbs says that if you curse your mother and father, if you curse your mother and father, Proverbs says your lamp will go out in deep darkness. Now, here's what that does not mean. That does not mean if you curse your parents, you automatically go to hell. That's not what that verse is teaching. That's not what the Bible or Christianity or Jesus himself taught. What that verse is saying is that bitterness is such a powerful thing, even if it might be bitterness toward God, maybe it's bitterness toward your parents in Proverbs, that bitterness will not be content to stay where it is. It will not localize, it will generalize, it will bleed. This is, you think about it. Why is it that when you go to a counselor, without fail, whatever your surface level issues are in your life, a counselor is always gonna get around to asking, hey, let's talk about what happened in that childhood home of origin. Let's talk about your relationship with your mom and with your dad. That's modern psychology catching up to what God was trying to tell us thousands of years ago in the book of Proverbs, that bitterness in any area of your life, even if it's toward your parents or toward God or whatever, it will not be content to stay where it is. What the author of Proverbs is saying is that it will bleed into your life, it will spread darkness through your life, and it will cause you to make all kinds of really unwise decisions like a person trying to navigate a pitch black cave without any lamp to guide them. That's the power of sin. It's not going to stay still. Lastly, God talks about the hope of victory over sin. Uh, To me, this is the most surprising thing that God says here. It's certainly the most hopeful thing that God says here, and that's why I wanted to leave this for last because I had a a feeling this is kind of how the room would feel by this point in the sermon. I just want you to consider this. Try re- imagine if you were reading the Bible for the first time and you don't know how the story ends. Imagine if you read Genesis 1 and 2, God's creating the world. Genesis 3, people mess it up pretty quickly. Genesis 4, you got Cain murdering his brother, and God's talking about sin. It's so good at hiding, and it's so powerful. But then, very curiously, God tells Cain, but you must rule over it. You must master it, which at the very least means, hey, I have good news, it can be mastered. 
there is an answer for this. It can be ruled. Imagine how hopeful that would have been back then, even if you didn't know how the story ended. Of course, we do. To understand how sin can be uh, mastered, to understand how sin can be ruled over, we're almost done, so I'd ask you to lean in here. All we have to do is look at the one to whom Abel is pointing. In the New Testament, just so you know, I'm not jackknifing this in here. In the New Testament, it's amazing. Jesus is referred to almost like he is, he's kind of like the ultimate Abel. There's a direct reference in Hebrews 12, I'll I'll read it in, in in a moment here, that draws this parallel between Abel and Jesus, but clearly says that Jesus is kind of like the Abel we've been waiting for. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Remember, in this story, Cain, like we said earlier, He's not this monster of an individual. You know, you wouldn't have been able to identify him as such to look at him on the surface. What he was is he's a nominally half-hearted religious person who tried to use God rather than serve God with his good deeds. Now, Abel, on the other hand, is, is pure, and he's devoted to God, and he's, he's giving, you know, he's laying before God his, his sacrifice, his offering, not out, of, not out of this desire to get anything from God, but just out of this genuine wholeheartedness. And there was something about Abel's purity, there was something about Abel's devotion to God and his wholeheartedness that brought out such an insecurity in Cain that he chose to murder Abel rather than deal with what Cain was bringing to the surface in his own life. <clears throat> now, thousands of years after this story, the gospel accounts tell us of someone who was just like Cain in the sense that he was completely pure. He was completely wholehearted. He loved God perfectly with all of his heart, his mind, his soul, and his strength. And just like the Abel in this story, he was killed by the Cains in his day. He was killed by the, the, the half-hearted religious people who would rather murder him than deal with what his presence was, was bringing to the surface in their own lives. And maybe you find that comparison interesting. And I never thought about how Jesus and Abel kind of have a, you know, a little bit of a commonality there. Maybe you find that interesting, but the way that this passage becomes life-changing is when you understand what Hebrews 12 is telling us about the real difference between Jesus and Abel actually is. In this story, we're told after Cain murdered Abel, God God comes to Cain and he tells Cain that Abel's blood is crying out from the ground like all unjustly spilled does. God is a God of justice. He pays attention to injustice. He will ensure that sooner or later, eventually, no injustice will remain. And so God tells Cain that the unjustly spilled blood of Abel is calling out to him, and therefore God says to Cain, you are cursed because that blood calls out against you. What the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 is that the unjust spilled blood of Jesus also calls out to him, and yet we're told that Jesus' blood speaks a better word on our behalf. Now, here's what this means. We've arrived at the end here, so I'm going to call the worship team up, and then we'll we'll close with communion. I think it was Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones that's credited with first uh, pointing this out. In 1 John chapter 1, We're told that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It does not say he's faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. It says that he is faithful and just. There's a reason for that. Scripture teaches that the moment that you give your life to Jesus, you get Jesus essentially as a legal advocate who is standing on your behalf before God the Father and always pleading in your defense. 
And so what happens, the moment that you've, moment you come before God the Father and said, Father, I'm asking you to accept me, not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for me. From that moment on, for the rest of your life, when you sin, Jesus is interceding before God the Father on your behalf. And what he essentially says is, Father, I know that they've sinned, but I paid the debt that their sin created with my own blood, and it would be unjust for you to demand two payments for the same crime. And so I'm not asking you for mercy for them. I'm simply asking you for justice. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an infallible case. That's exactly why Paul the Apostle could write the words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because in Christ, God can no more deny you than he could deny himself and his own nature. He cannot condemn you without denying who he is, and he cannot deny himself, so he's never going to let go of you. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. So I want to end like this. If you have any desire to see the sin, this predatorial, hiding, bloodthirsty sin in your heart, if you have any desire to see that driven out of your life before it ruins your life and makes a mess of your life, the only thing powerful enough to do that is a personal encounter with the unmerited grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we need if we want to be legitimately changed by this passage in the word of God is first and foremost, we need to see ourselves as Cain in this story. The story of Cain and Abel is the story of one person's out of control sin becoming somebody else's problem and costing them their life. The story of the gospel is your and my out of control sin becoming Jesus's problem and costing him his life. But the gospel is that Jesus' spilled blood calls out not for our condemnation, but for our acceptance, for our acquittal. It calls God to love us and to accept us forever and always. And when you understand that in a more than intellectual way, when that comes home to you for the first time and that gets more real to you all throughout your life, what happens is you and I will become less and less of an angry, resentful, entitled Cain, always believing that we're owed a better life than the one that we have, and we'll become more and more of a loving, joyful, gracious Abel, so moved with thankfulness to a God that we can never outgive because we know he's already given us everything in his son Jesus. So we're going to conclude our time together this morning by taking communion. I want to invite you during this final song to come to either one of these tables, take the bread, take the juice, and just take it back to your seat and take some time between you and God. At the end of this song, I'm going to come back. We'll take communion together. But this time is an invitation for you. I just want to encourage you. Take whatever this passage brings to the surface in your life. Take that before God, knowing that he is a God who chose to die for you rather than condemn you. That's it. That's all. Let's take communion. The Word of God says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to God who is the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel.
you can take communion. Father God, we are half-hearted creatures. And everything that we can identify in Cain, uh, we're fools if we don't identify it in ourselves. The entitlement, the pride, the anger, the bitterness, the tendency to try to use you rather than love you and serve you and honor you and worship you the way that you deserve. God, we are a mess. We need grace. We need grace. We need grace. And that's exactly what you've provided in Jesus. God, it is such an amazing thing to consider the blood of Jesus calling out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Such an amazing thing that Jesus, who paid the ultimate price for our sin, calls for our acquittal, calls for our acceptance. I'm just asking individually and as a community, God, that that would be more than something we understand with our minds today that this story of Cain and Abel would lead us right to the heart of the gospel and that things that maybe we know with our mind would become real to us in deeper and more life-changing ways. That Jesus is the true and better Abel who went to the cross for our sin to save us from what we could have never saved ourselves from. God, let the realization of that create in us such a joy, such a thankfulness, such a wholeheartedness that this world can't help but sit up and take notice and wonder what it is that we have that produces that in us. In the name of Jesus, we ask all these things with nothing but hope. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, Severn.